Hello, I'm Zoe Daniel, recently returned ABC News US Bureau Chief. Thanks for joining us for this event hosted by the US Studies Centre at the University of Sydney. Election Watch, the Vice Presidential Sweepstakes. Next month, Democrat Joe Biden will choose his presumptive Vice Presidential running mate. He's already pledged that will be a she. The last female VP candidate was Sarah Palin, who helped usher the Tea Party to prominence in 2008 when she ran alongside John McCain and became a media phenomenon in her own right. But no presidential ticket with a woman on it has ever been elected in the US. And of course, we all know what happened in 2016. Joe Biden is also the oldest presidential candidate in history at 77 and is facing a high stakes contest. So who will he choose and does it matter? It's great to have you with us from across time zones around the world as we explore some big questions today. Before we do, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are on and pay respects to their elders past, present and future. Our panel today, joining us from the US, Dr. Jennifer Lawless, the Commonwealth Professor of Politics at the University of Virginia. She's the author or co-author of six books and editor of the American Journal of Political Science and is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Kim Hoggard is a non-resident fellow at the United States Studies Center. She worked for two US presidents on domestic, economic and international affairs, including as Deputy Assistant Press Secretary and Deputy Assistant Secretary of Treasury for Public Affairs for Ronald Reagan, and also for George W. Bush. And Professor Simon Jackman, as you know, has been the Chief Executive of the US Studies Center since 2016. He was a Professor of Political Science and Statistics at Stanford for 20 years, has written for countless leading journals and headed up world leading research into American political behaviors and attitudes. So welcome to all three of you. Now, I'd like to begin with a short pricey from each of you on what's important to consider when choosing a running mate in 2020. Jennifer Lawless, let's start with you from Virginia. Great, thank you, and thank you for having me on the panel. I'd say that there are three things that a president or a presidential candidate should consider. The first is, does this person complement the presidential candidate? And by complement, I mean both in terms of campaign style, but also governing style, as well as the alliances and relationships that he or she might have in Washington. Second, is this person ready to assume the job on day one? As you already mentioned, Joe Biden will be starting uh, his term, assuming he's elected as the oldest president, and we need to make sure that should something happen, this is not a per the vice presidential candidate is not somebody who requires several years of on-the-job training. And three, will this person provide fodder for the opposition? Because no presidential candidate wants to have to deal with the scandals or the problems associated with the running mate. Now, I will just say that notice I didn't say whether this person is from a swing state or whether this person will convince independent voters because there's just not that much evidence that they can. Kim Hoggage, your view? Well, I agree with everything that Jen just said, of course, but this election is a little bit unique. And I would say the top consideration is presidential material. I mean, if we think about it, if Biden were to win, he has not indicated whether he would run for re-election. So his choice could potentially be the, dem the first female president of the United States. So absolutely without question, it's presidential material. 
first and foremost. And he has said that by saying she has to be ready on day one to be president. I think it's a clear signal what he's thinking. And he's obviously said that he's a transition president. But also from my own personal experience uh, at the White House, at Treasury and at the State Department, um, it's, I learned quite quickly that relationships matter very much, personal relationships. And uh, so he, and he's made clear, Biden's made clear that he wants somebody who's simpatico with him, somebody who's going to support his policies, but also somebody he can get along with. So, you know, when Reagan chose Bush, he chose his opponent. And I can tell you, having worked on the Reagan campaign, Reagan and Bush campaign did not like each other, really did not like each other. Bush had described Reagan with, you know, the voodoo economics. So for him to make that move was unifying for the party. So there's questions about whether Biden would be attempting to unify the party with picking someone like Elizabeth Warren. Uh, but anyway, my, I'll stop there. But I think first and foremost is, is uh, presidential consideration. Yes, and that's obviously a key factor. And I will take you all through the favourites, if you like, in a moment. Simon Jackman, though, first, your general take on important considerations. Yeah, sure. Look, Jen um, was my student at Stanford a while ago. Um, and look, I... I she has nailed it. Um, the literature is pretty clear on this. The, the, the swing state, what, it, what a VP pick might do for you in a given state here or there or a given region of the country. There's very little evidence for that. Uh, in part, maybe because the picks are along the lines that Jen and uh, Kim have been alluding to. Don't pick someone who's going to embarrass you, number one. Pick someone that's going to you know, do no harm. Um, and for those reasons, the, the ability for us in the literature uh, to detect any effect from a given pick one way or the other is very, very limited. Um, there's, there's very little evidence for that. And, that, and that's why this year is, is so fascinating. And again, for the reasons we'll get into in a moment, and I think for the reasons that, that Kim has teed up, this pick is, I think, less about unifying the party, which is perhaps one of the things um, that you might see a, a pick doing, at least in my view. And, and more to do about signaling down the road a possible future president and, and perhaps a future president sooner than we might otherwise be thinking. Uh, not, not someone that might be the presumptive nominee in eight years time or perhaps four years time, but under a set of circumstances that you'd have to say is, is not as unlikely as we've perhaps thought of it in the past, someone that potentially could become president of the United States uh, on, on a shorter time frame than, than, than four or eight years. We're keen for your questions and we will scatter them through this Q&A. So feel free to drop your questions into the Q&A screen and I'll try to get to them when I can. Now, there are several candidates who are on the list for this role, but I think the things that the three of you have mentioned kind of narrow that list quite considerably particularly when you take the point that Biden himself has said that that person needs to be able to do the job from day one. So to me, that drops off several of the kind of outsider or uh, less experienced candidates. Jennifer Lawless, I'd be keen to get your view on perhaps who you think the, the top three 
are. I think we know who the favourite is, uh, but who else is kind of in the frame? So I think Kamala Harris and Val Demings are two of the most obvious top tier candidates right now. They've both said that they've been vetted and they're both all over the media. They're doing all of the appearances. They're basically trying to audition in a way that candidates can't, given that there's no actual campaign trail right now. Uh, as far as a third slot is concerned, I guess I would say Elizabeth Warren, but I think it's very unlikely. Uh, but I, I think she's probably still one of the three top contenders. Okay, so Kim Hoggard, to you, I mean, there are some other, as I said, outsiders, uh, people like Tammy Duckworth has been mentioned, um, particularly of late. Uh, we have Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, who's been prominent in recent times. Uh, are those people actually in the mix or, or not? In my opinion, uh, the, the choice of, of the vice president really comes down to um, who people think will be able to fill the shoes of the president. And I really think you have to look at that from elected office. I think often the public will see senators as people who um, probably are the first off the mark to have that capability. Now we've seen uh, two potential presidential candidates in, in Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. And of course, the Senator, Senator Duckworth from Illinois and uh, Tammy Baldwin, all of these senators probably would have a leg up over, over their other considerations because of their uh, elected position. I do think people like Keisha Lance Bottoms, who is very impressive, um, but she is a mayor and uh, she and Stacey Adams, I, I believe, um, Abrams, I'm sorry, uh, probably wouldn't uh, fill the bill. I, I don't think the public would look and say, okay, they're ready to be uh, in, the, in the Oval Office. Mm -hmm. um, I'm quite interested in Karen Bass, who has come up as a, as a late um, throw into this, but I, I'll just preface it by saying a lot of the people that we're seeing, uh, you know, ranked in the media as being under consideration, a, a campaign team that's investigating choices to put to the presidential candidate will add a lot of names. Not necessarily are they going to be people that really are going to be making the cut. But it does, what excites me about it is the wealth of talent in, the, in women across the country in the United States. And, and not just white women, but women of color mm. uh, and disabled women, you know, LGBT, you know, everything across the board. It, it's, it's really impressive. And I think a lot of what Biden is doing, or his team is doing, is collecting a list of people that can be used within the administration. And I would also say on Elizabeth Warren, it's a bit risky picking her for electoral reason. You know, she's, he, the, the important thing in this election isn't just the vice presidential pick, it's can we win this, can the Democrats, I'm speaking in Biden's team language, can, can they win the Senate? So uh, to, to, to choose Elizabeth Warren would mean to lose that Senate seat, and it's a Republican governor who would be selecting her replacement, 
until <clears throat> such time as an election can be held, and there's no guarantee that she would be, uh, that a Democrat would be elected. So it's a bit risky to me, in my mind, when you've got to get, you know, three Senate seats. Uh, you don't want to be giving any away. So that's the, that's the other counter argument about picking a senator uh, from this list. Although from California, say Kamala Harris, you're pretty much guaranteed you're gonna get a Democrat to replace her. I think those um, are really good points. And mm -hmm. Simon Jackman, I might get you to speak to Elizabeth Warren. I mean, she's kind of a risky candidate in various ways because many people might find her too progressive. Uh, therefore, is that sort of too far to the left for Biden to go? But also, I wanted to go uh, to a previous point that you've made that people generally don't really care that much about vice presidential picks. But is this year different because firstly, it's a very high stakes election. You've got all of those gender and race issues and also Joe Biden's age, which goes to the fact that people are viewing this as this person might potentially become the first female vice president, as Kim mentioned. Uh, well, female and, and president, sorry. Female president, yeah. yeah. No, exactly, Zoe. Um, um, I think that's why this year and why this conversation is such an important one to have. Um, it's going to be an election precisely because of Biden's age, precisely because he's also signaled he, he, he's a one-term president. Um, um, you know, we'll see. I think it's a very hard job to let go of once you're there, no matter what your age is. But, but um, the expectations that his nominee for Veep will become either the nominee of the party in four years' time, or under, as I, as I said again, just given Biden's age, is there a handover uh, earlier than that? Um, the, the probability of that is just so much higher than it's been in other election cycles that this pick becomes so important. And the other reason is just the political reason too. Um, Trump is finding it, the Republicans are, are trying to find a, a, a point of leverage um, very tough to campaign against Biden right now when COVID and, and police violence and racial injustice and the economic state of the US in the, in, in the wake of COVID. There's so many headwinds for Trump right now and he's looking to pick fights, looking for a way in to, 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 to break up um, the way the Democratic Party is so unified in their desire to get rid of Trump. A veep, is a veep pick that is too far to the left a way of, of getting some political oxygen back in, into the Trump campaign? And so that's why I think, to come back to your first question, Zoe, is, is that why I think there's no, there's no good, um, you know, and this is not an argument about Elizabeth Warren as a person or as a politician, but just in terms of the general election constituency, there's not a, there's not a strong argument for it. Um, why would you go there um, when there are so many other well-qualified uh, women out there that you don't have the, the argument that, that Kim gave us about that Senate seat possibly being replaced by a Republican. Um, and I think there are other picks out there that um, keep your democratic coalition together, but don't give um, as much political uh, opportunity um, to Trump and, 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 the, and the Trump campaign. Jennifer Lawless, the other thing going against Elizabeth Warren, to be quite blunt, is that she's white. Is this an election in which the vice presidential candidate has to be 
non-white? I, I don't think so. I'll speak to that in one minute. I would say that Elizabeth Warren's second biggest liability, apart from her, the perception that she's Bernie Sanders on policy, is that she's 70. And so Joe Biden has to demonstrate that he's willing to put together an administration that is willing to look forward, not just back. And although Elizabeth Warren appears youthful and although she's full of energy and very, very healthy, the reality is that it would be two pretty old people on the ticket. As far as race is concerned, I think the Biden campaign needs to be very, very clear and not just signal, but be very, very clear about policies that they would implement on day one to begin to promote some semblance of racial justice. And one easy way to do that is to make sure that his administration looks like America. And he's already said that his cabinet will. He's already said that he will appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. Um, I don't know that any one office has to be held by any particular person of color. It's more about the entire administration. But there's no question about it that many of the qualified women on his list are women of color and could serve as a very, very credible commitment to voters that he's serious and that he's going to walk the walk. So this sort of paradigm in the media that we're looking at, that it needs to be an African-American or a Latino Hispanic person, is that a media construct? I mean, I was looking at some polling this week which showed that four out of five Americans don't think race is a factor, yet that seems to be quite prominent in the press conversation. I mean, I think that the media generally, and I, I mean, I talk to them all the time, they like um, a battle of the sexes, they like a battle of the races, they like opposition, they like, you know, a cat fight is great, and it doesn't matter who it's between. So to some extent, I think part of this is a, a narrative that has ultimately taken hold in part because of Black Lives Matter and what we're seeing on the streets of the United States. I don't know if the importance of um, a black vice presidential candidate or any vice presidential candidate of color would have mattered as much had public events and current events not erupted the way that they did. That said, it is real. These things are happening right now. And I think whether it started out as just a media narrative or not, um, it's something that political elites are certainly focused on. And at the end of the day, even if it doesn't matter that much to voters, what matters to voters is that, especially voters that are out there protesting, are that Joe Biden becomes president. And so part of the reason they might say that it doesn't matter that much is they don't care. They just want to make sure that he defeats Donald Trump. And whatever way he thinks and his campaign thinks is the best way to do it, they might be on board. Kim, I'll come back to you. A question from the audience. Jonathan Woodward from the Royal Australian Navy asks, uh, what are your thoughts on Kanye's bid for the presidency? But beyond that, um, some comments that it's racist and a form of white supremacy to say or imply that African-Americans have to vote Democrat. I'm not sure I can answer that last part of the question. I think you'd have to ask an African-American that question. Um, as far as Kanye West, um, well, I'll start off by saying, you know, he's got a lot of work to do if he wants to really run for president. I mean, he's maybe passing some of the deadlines and states in which he could put his name on a ballot. Uh, he has no structure in place to do so. That's a huge undertaking. I'm not sure the American people are ready for another squillionaire to put their hand up to run for office. Um, having said that though, third party candidates can be 
a thorn in the side and can take votes away uh, from other candidates trying to win. Um, we certainly saw that in, in George H.W. Bush's reelection effort with Ross Perot uh, entering the race and, and getting 19% of, the, of mm -hmm. the vote. And uh, Clinton won by six or seven points. So um, that definitely was a factor. It was a factor in the uh, Bush-Gore race um, as well, uh, but not so much there. But you know, even even Reagan had a had an independent John Anderson running, but it didn't affect him. But nevertheless, it can have an effect. Um, Kanye, I think, with some people, some people seek attention, and one way to seek attention is to put your hand up to run for president. You'll you'll have an automatic platform. So I'm not sure we can take that too seriously at the moment. Getting back to the strengths of the particular candidates, Suzanne Rickard asks, beyond winning, what are the deep policy strengths of each potential female candidate? Kim, looking at those couple that you mentioned that you think are in the top of the frame there, what do they bring to that role? That's a good question because certainly one of the criteria that a, that a presidential candidate would be considering um, is what are the vice presidential nominee's strengths and what are the president's weaknesses? How do they, how are they um, matched up? Um, you know, Joe Biden has had 40 to 50 years experience in Washington. Um, in that respect, he reminds me of George H.W. Bush. They come with so much knowledge, uh, personal relationships, um, you know, depth of experience that you can't say that, you know, he needs somebody who's a foreign policy expert. He pretty much has that under his, under his collar. So to me, that, that eliminates people like Susan Rice, who is incredibly uh, talented and smart and experienced on defense and national security and, and foreign policy issues. But Biden really doesn't need that. She's also not ever been an elected official. Mm -hmm. I think she could serve certainly in the government. She could run for a congressional office if she was interested in politics. I don't see her as a political animal myself so much. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, the, the other, so where, where, are, where are Biden's weaknesses? Well, it's his age. Uh, in the case of Obama, Obama's weakness was he was young, he was, somewhat inexperienced, hadn't been in the Senate for very long. You know, Republicans like to try to discredit him by saying, oh, he's just a community activist, you know, you know, as if, you know, he, he didn't even have any status as a senator, senator. So he chose Biden because of his age and because of his wealth of experience across foreign policy and national security issues in particular. And that gave him some gravitas. Uh, you know, in the case of, of George W. Bush, again, somebody who'd been a two-term governor, but had no real foreign policy experience and really hadn't even traveled much overseas to begin with. Um, so picking Dick Cheney, uh, former Secretary of Defense, former Congressman, um, you know, gave him some weight on, on military and foreign policy uh, aspects. Um, the other... 
issue for, so I think for, for Biden, it's, he's really looking for someone younger. I, and I agree with Jen and the other comments earlier about Warren's age probably isn't going to give anybody great heart. Uh, Kamala Harris is at, at 55. The only thing with Kamala is she's an attorney general, a former attorney general. And there are a lot of people in the black community that aren't happy with her record as attorney general. Mm. That, that can be an issue in the campaign. Um, I'm, I'm sure the president will be spending a lot of time trying to talk up his own criminal justice reforms, as he calls them, or prison reforms, and, and uh, he'll be using that, uh, her record. The other the thing about both of them, though, uh, about uh, Kamala, is that her record is there. It's out there. It's already been vetted through this nomination process. So it's a bit old news. So they could, he, you know, that could be written out. Uh, but I, I think for, for Biden, it's really pointing to me to have an African-American choice. So for, for to, to me, it's between Karen Bass now, who doesn't come with uh, an attorney general background or a prosecutorial background like Amy Klobuchar did and who read the writing on the wall and, and dropped out earlier, uh, and Kamala has. And I, I, I think that's probably the, the biggest obstacle for Kamala. Karen Bass, who I like to see is like the smiling assassin. She's such a clever operator, but she does it with a smile on her face. And she, she's very likable. Um, and so, but she's not known, really. She doesn't have the national name recognition. And, mm -hmm. and that, that's, that's a weight. Uh, and that can her. be a good and bad thing. Jennifer, I'll be. come to you about this in a moment. Simon, I'm keen to get your take. I mean, I think it's worth kind of analysing Kamala Harris given that she's the favourite. Uh, but as Kim says, you know, she does have baggage, which some people will find problematic. But then if you also look at all the things we're talking about that Biden needs, a young woman, a woman of colour, a woman who can step in and do the job straight away, she ticks all of those boxes. So in terms of qualifications, she's, she is kind of the most obvious person and that's why she's the favourite. But then how is that balanced up by the sort of baggage uh, that Kim mentioned, Simon? Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm not sure. I don't know if, uh, you know, maybe we will have a conversation about this. I'm not sure that the qualification... That, that it needs to be a, a woman of colour. Um, I know there's a sense of historic opportunity and that this is a, an election with capital H history written all over it. And, uh, and do you double down on that if you're Joe Biden, not just with a female running mate, but, uh, but a woman of colour? And maybe when you're up by nine or 10 points in the polls nationally, seizing this, this moment, um, might might make sense. But there's a part of me, and I'm sure a lot of other Democrats in the United States, uh, um, Democratic strategists are uh, probably having the same sort of conversation with one another or with themselves. Um, and that is just win the damned election. <laughs> um, and, um, and that's why Biden is the nominee to begin with. Um, I, I, uh, up the middle... Uh, safe choice who can just win the damned election, um, number one. And so who's the VP pick 
that helps you just win the damned election. Um, and while while committing to Biden's promise um, that it will be a female nominee. And I, I don't know, I haven't seen her name. I don't know if she's pulled out or, or the vetting has come up short on, on the governor of Michigan, uh, Gretchen Whitmer. Mm, I think um, she's still she's still floating there on the yeah, edge. Yeah, but I haven't heard, I haven't seen a name much as a lot of the conversation and as Jennifer alluded to in the opening, look at who's doing the heavy, heavy auditioning on Sunday morning chat or the op-ed pages at the moment. And it's Kamala, it's Tammy Duckworth, Susan Rice is, is doing a ton of media at the moment. Haven't seen much of, of Gretchen Whitmer, but she's the governor of Michigan. And Michigan is the state you need you know, to win back one of those states. In the, and everything I said about states not mattering, well, perhaps on the margin, they might. Um, and, she, and, and she's a white woman from the Midwest. And there was this sort of Amy Klobuchar school of thought for a while before uh, her, her record as a prosecutor uh, in Minnesota was, was probably going to sink her on the back of the George Floyd um, uh, and, and the resurgence of, of Black Lives Matter and racial justice is a huge theme in this election cycle. Um, but I just wonder how the vetting is going on Gretchen Whitmer. Well, on that moment. too, I mean, you raise an interesting point that if, if, if any part of Trump's base is wobbly, it's white women. So would a candidate like that perhaps drag those people if they're, you know, in that basket of perhaps going either and, way? And, 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 and that's my argument, Zoe. It's, it's about electability and, and just hit those. It's, it's those three states that you lost last time that you had no business losing, by the way, and should, absolutely should have won. What is it that we've got to do to get those states, you know, putting, putting your hat on, just sort of I'm channeling a democratic strategist right now. Um, what is it that you've got to do? Now, the, the counter argument is the reason you lost those states is because you left the Obama coalition behind. They weren't sufficiently energised by that. And so that's what a, a candidate of colour does. And it says an interesting thing about democratic politics in the United States at the moment. Do you play the base strategy, the democratic version of the base strategy is pick candidates that, that just energize the base. And so does a female woman of color do that for you? Probably. Or the other, the other argument is, is, is no elections are, the, the base is unified because Trump is doing that for you. Your job now is to win in the, in the center and just double down on what you've done with the top of the ticket and that is a, a fairly conventional a woman, but still a, a fairly white woman governor of an upper Midwestern state. Get it done. Let's open another Pandora's box then. And obviously there are a thousand good reasons to have a female vice president. But Jennifer Lawless, if the entire objective is to win the election and there has never been an election won that had a woman on the ticket, is 2020 the right year to be doing that? Yes, and I feel like I need to provide some facts here. So first of all, let's remember in 2016, Hillary Clinton actually received more votes than Donald Trump. Second, in congressional elections, House and Senate races dating back to 1980, there's been no evidence that women lose at higher rates, that they don't raise as much money, that they garner worse media coverage. There's this perception out there that women can't win elections, but when push comes to shove, there's actually no evidence of that. And so I think that one of the things that we need to keep in mind this time around is that 
people vote based on the party and whether they share the party identification of the candidate or that candidate's ticket, not based on whether there's a woman on the ticket or whether there's a person of color on the ticket. So this seems to be a time where we should be making history. We had the most diverse field of Democratic candidates we've ever seen, and the two finalists were almost octogenarian white guys. So it's time to send a signal that the world is changing and that it's a different place, and there's literally no electoral risk involved in putting a woman on the ticket. If we look at 1984 when Geraldine Ferraro was on the ticket, I think Walter Mondale would be the first person to tell you that he lost that race not because of Geraldine Ferraro. And as far as McCain and Palin are concerned, this is a situation where Palin actually energized the base and sort of provided some credibility for John McCain when it came to Christian evangelicals. So she had a lot of other liabilities, but the fact that she was a woman on the ticket doesn't seem to have been the problem. Going to audience questions again, Michael S. Goodman asks, are there concerns which are starting to develop about Biden's mental capacity and ability to handle the presidency? And this is a conversation that's being, being had on both sides of politics. Jennifer, is that a thing? It was a thing during the primary. I think that since he's become the presumptive nominee, he's done a really excellent job juxtaposing himself to Donald Trump and being quite effective in communicating, whether it be in terms of empathy or even in terms of policy details. So look, there's no question about it. He sometimes loses words and he sometimes steps on his words and he's not Barack Obama when it comes to giving a speech or delivering remarks. But I don't think that there's much evidence to suggest that he's losing it. It's Donald Trump's goal to try and make that narrative stick. But, you know, I, I don't think that there's much evidence when you actually look at how Biden has performed since he's become the presumptive nominee. Keen to get your thoughts, too, on those top female candidates, just what they bring. Can you just sort of illuminate where you think the skill sets are in those top two or three that you mentioned? Uh, so for Kamala Harris, I think the fact that she's won statewide, the fact that she's seen as somebody that really gets under Donald Trump's skin, and we saw during the impeachment hearings, we saw during various other um, congressional hearings that she's willing to fight and fight hard like a prosecutor. I think those are qualities that people look for. They think that the ticket has to be able to take on Donald Trump, and he fights dirty, and he fights in a way that a lot of candidates are not accustomed to. As far as Val Demings is concerned, the reason I think she's a really interesting contender is twofold. First, she has a previous background in law enforcement. And so she is uniquely qualified, not just unusually, like uniquely qualified to figure out how policy and practice can help bring more racial justice to this country. The other thing that's nice about her is she was one of the managers of the impeachment trial of Donald Trump. So she too will really get under his skin. Although I agree with Simon, Trump hates Gretchen Whitmer as well. And so any of these women really <laughs> provide Trump with an opportunity to spend all of his time bashing them, which is good for the Democrats because chances are the criticisms that he's launching are not necessarily gonna be the criticisms that would really bother Democratic voters. They're just gonna be the name calling that we've become accustomed to for the last four years. And Jennifer, do you think Gretchen Whitmer's in the frame? I, I mean, the last that I had heard, she said that she wanted to remain governor of Michigan. But every potential candidate says that they're really not interested in the job. Stacey Abrams is the exception. She's been actively campaigning for it. Hmm. Um, but so I, I wouldn't write anybody off at this point, except Amy Klobuchar, who's ex explicitly said that she is not um, in the running. 
Kim Hoggard, just on the sort of more general scene, I, I think Simon's alluded to the potential that Joe Biden, with that big lead in the polls, has a bit more freedom in who he chooses and perhaps that, you know, there's, there's some room for some risk there. Um, but, well, firstly, having experienced the 2016 campaign and being therefore very suspicious of polling, I'm wondering whether it is Biden who's energising anything or whether it's kind of just a default position and also how much faith you have in those numbers? You know, this is a, um, I agree with you about Biden. He, he, needs to, he needs to create some excitement. And I think he's tried to do that by announcing that he's going to select a female as his running mate. And I think uh, he will create even more excitement if he, if he chooses an African-American woman. Now, all of the women that we've been talking about are all quite capable. There's no question in my mind. So we really don't have to worry about who he picks, I think. <laughs> I don't think the country needs to worry about it. Um, he has uh, everything it takes to be a good president. His stumbling, um, his searching for words sometimes, he runs on his sentences. I think he just needs to pace himself, a bit like Ronald Reagan did, uh, who was 69 when he ran, and everybody said he was too old. Um, he just needs to pace himself. It's actually been beneficial for him to be in the basement, yeah. uh, because he doesn't need to be out there. Uh, he, he does. I mean, the president is is his best <laughs> campaign <enemy>. tactic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he doesn't have to say a thing. He just he needs to keep creating uh, excitement. He needs to keep talking about his policies and how he would be addressing current issues such as the pandemic. I think that's really important, and I agree with Jen. He's been out there. He he's he's run a, a smart campaign. What I also like about what Biden is doing at the moment in terms of vice presidential selection is not only are, are they having plenty of time to vet these people and look for the red flags and check the finances and do the full background check, um, but they're also talking to people who have run, to women who have run for elected office, to their campaign staffs, who have helped them run for elective office, to look at the issues and the obstacles that they have come across as women uh, running. And that is going to inform the general election campaign going forward, how they can support their female nominee. And I think that's really, uh, uh, has a lot of foresight and planning. And I think the Biden team and of course the United Democrat Party, with the weight of that going into it and, and the depth in which they're talking about the issues. And I think we'll hear more of that after the, the Democratic Convention when the party presents its platform. Um, that's going to be a stark contrast to the Trump administration, which has been pretty superficial across so many uh, issues that are so complex I mean, this election is so important given the um, number of challenges the United States faces, historic, unprecedented challenges. And they're not just the immediate 
issues of the pandemic and unemployment rate and the economy. It's the longer term issues of climate change and health insurance and immigration uh, and the inequity in the country. There are just so many structural issues, let alone systemic racism, uh, throughout um, the, the country and, and the divide. How do we bring that together? So the government, the, the new president, whoever it's going to be, it's going to just, it, it's going to need a whole of government approach, a whole approach from every elected official in Congress, in the executive branch, across all the states, as well as every civil public political servant to really come together to try to address these issues. And I think Americans will be going to the polls, understanding the severity of the situation that their country is in at the moment, and they will be taking this election seriously. And I think we'll see, uh, depending on the, the, the pandemic and where we are on November 3rd, because that's a whole nother discussion mm. about uh, availability to vote. But I think we're going to see a lot of people voting. Yeah, I've got a couple of questions on just how the campaign might look that I'll get to in a moment. But Kim, while you're on that issue of the DNC convention, I'm trying to remember how the process works. Giselle Maneve asks, can Biden announce the vice presidential candidate before the convention and would that actually be a smart move to allow mm. particularly given the delays due to coronavirus would that allow sort of a two-pronged campaign attack to begin earlier in order to get momentum i think he should i think he should announce it beforehand technically i'm not sure if you can mm. I, I given that the that both conventions have been delayed because of the pandemic uh to much later you know we would be knowing by you know, pretty soon who yeah. that choice was going to be. Now, he said he's going to announce it on August 1st. So I guess there's your answer. Right. Because the convention's not till the 17th of, of August. But I would be definitely getting out there as quickly as possible. However, I get back to what I said before. Having the time that they have to vet these people will mean we're going to get the best possible candidate. Um, for him to run you know when when Reagan ran and won we went to the convention and there was actually a flirtation with Gerald Ford the former president to be Reagan's vice president so this is back and forth on you know hmm. across the three days of the convention negotiating with Ford about you know would he and, and Reagan thought okay this could be a good idea we could we could do this and of course as they as they progressed and the media were going nuts, and we're going, what is going on here? Um, you know, it became apparent that Ford was not going to be a second fiddle. It was going to be more like a co-partnership or a co-presidency. And so Reagan thought, no, that's not going to work. And so he turned to Bush, his opponent, and he said, you know, George, it seems to me that the most likely person who ought to be the next, the, the vice president is the one who got the next most votes. What do you say? <laughs> And, 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 and they just immediately switched off all the animosity that had happened during the campaign. But at the last minute, or not last minute, I'm sure he was thinking about several people, but you know, the fact that the, he seriously looked at Ford and then went to Bush 
is not the way I think you, you really should go about making your decision. So I think that the process that Biden is going through is going to be ultimately good for the country as well, because he's vetted all these talented women. I'm sure we're going to see other roles for these women. As far as Gretchen Whitmer, you know, again, another talented woman. But I, I'm, when I look at the list that, that we have before us now, the only white woman there that to me seems really viable is Elizabeth Warren. Uh, in terms of presidential material at I think this moment in time. And so that's why I was looking more at the African-American uh, that, are, that, that are on this list. Uh, I think that that's a really, um, it's kind of an optimistic point to consider that one, well, from a female perspective, one real upside of all of this is that you could end up with a cabinet that's very heavily stacked yeah. with a lot of skilled women because so many of these women have been so heavily vetted. The, the skills are out there. They're out there on um, the public stage, effectively being analysed and vetted by the American people. So even if they don't end up being VP or eventually president, you know, they may have a role in an administration, which is a great step forward for, for all of us, really. Simon Jackman, I wanted to ask you, um, in fact, Glenda Corporal from The Australian has sent a question asking, um, what are the implications for Australia of a Biden win? But sort of further to that, are there any um, Australian links or considerations to be taken into account with, with any of the potential candidates? No, uh, none that I'm especially aware of. And, and this is where the, the policy competence or the policy specialization of the, of the VP um, nominee or the ultimate V um, becomes important. Um, Biden visited Australia when he was vice president. I had the great honor. One of the first things I ever did as CEO of the US Study Center was hosting Biden um, along with the Lowy Institute. We did an event with Biden in Sydney got to spend a bit of time with him and his people um, in those couple of days he was in Sydney. Um, and, and what my takeaway from that was, is that Obama, the Veep is the one often on a plane handling a lot of um, um, international relations, diplomacy, alliance management sort of issues. Pence has done a little bit of that. He's been to Australia. Um, uh, Trump has not. Um, um, and so that's, a, that's, a, that's where it becomes a little bit interesting for Australia because I think our embassy, as you would know well, Zoe, I think found uh, Pence's office a, a particularly important vector <laughs> of influence um, when they need it, you know, um, among others. But, but, but it's, that's been one role that the V position has played. HW had that strong depth um, international affairs as well, I think. You know, not that the Reagan White House was short for experience in, in international relations at all, but, but it's an important complement to that. The VEEP is often the one getting on the plane and going off and, and, and doing uh, meetings and whatnot when it doesn't rise to the level of principle to principle. So, so that's where it becomes interesting for Australia, and that's where the picks get interesting, because I look at Elizabeth Warren, I look at Kamala Harris. When Early on, indeed, when they were being considered for top of the ticket, one thing I was acutely aware of was perhaps if there was a knock on them, it might have been their lack of foreign policy experience, very strong on domestic issues. That's mm. Elizabeth Warren's uh, uh, bread and butter as a politician, and to some extent, Kamala Harris's as well. It's, an, it's no criticism of them, and I think it's something that a lot of presidential aspirants go through in the United States. What's the claim I can make 
to be a leader of the United States vis-a-vis -vis the world. And, and that's a difficult transition. Um, and often where committee service in the, in the United States Senate um, um, often plays a, a critical role in building up that part of a political portfolio. So this is why I come back to, you know, maybe Tammy Duckworth um, is, is perhaps got that, uh, that, that, uh, that element uh, in her portfolio. But again, other than perhaps having served alongside Australian military personnel uh, when she was um, in, in the Iraq campaigns. Um, you know, that's about the extent of it, mm. uh, I'm afraid. But you'd say the same thing about Pence. What was Pence's connection uh, to Australia? In the end, I think it's turned out that his staff and, and the brief he, has he was handed by Trump sort of created that opportunity yes. for Australia to find influence. Well, it's such a mercurial Trump White House too that in a way the Vice President's office has been more of a stable uh, vector, as you described it, uh, for both embassies and journalists, I might add. Uh, <laughs> Jennifer Lawless, uh, Kevin Cheney asks whether a selection also needs to take into account the opposition. The point of the question, I guess, being, is there one of those candidates that would uh, create more vulnerabilities for the Trump campaign more than another? I don't think so. Um, again, Amy Klobuchar was the going to be, I think, the biggest problem for Biden, which would have made it easier for the Trump campaign. Donald Trump is going to attack whomever the vice presidential pick is. He's going to associate whoever that person is with socialism and an agenda that's way out of sync of what the, with what the American people want. Um, and it's basically gonna be an insert candidate here. It doesn't matter what the people's records are. It doesn't matter what Biden's record is. He's basically painting Biden as Bernie Sanders. And so, you know, I think that the Democrats are aware of this. They know the playbook. And what Biden needs to do is put together a ticket and ultimately an administration for governing, not for campaigning. And frankly, that's a big benefit that the Democrats have this time around because we can't have a campaign the way that we're accustomed to having campaigns. You know, I just want to get back to an earlier point. Often presidential candidates name their vice presidential candidate at the beginning of the summer because they can then basically go around the country and show everybody what a great ticket they are. They can also be in two places at once. There was no incentive to do that this time around because they can't go anywhere. They can't do anything and they can't be any place. Mm -hmm. And so the upside is that that's given the Biden campaign more time to vet who the VP will ultimately be. We've got about 10 minutes left and I want to get back to how that campaign might look. But Jennifer, just before I do, Joe Biden's had his own sort of low-level Me Too controversies, um, which I guess is part of the reason that we're at the point that we are in terms of choosing a female candidate. But might some people view that as kind of opportunistic or, or a bit cynical on his part? I mean, I think that we're at the point in this country where Donald Trump has rendered the notion that you can say anything to women, you can do anything to women and pay a price moot because he paid no price, right? So in every other industry, in every other realm, if you said and did the kinds of things that Donald Trump said and did, you were fired. And Joe Biden being able to come out and say, look, in the 80s and in the 90s and the 2000s, even in the early 2010s, I was unaware of the way that I was speaking to women. I was unaware that I might've been making them feel uncomfortable. I think it shows a sense of growth that people were looking for in Donald Trump and didn't get. And so in some ways, Donald Trump has lowered the bar. If Trump had not been president, I don't know if Biden would be able to get away from the allegations, if he'd be able to 
um, basically just say he's evolved as a person and times have changed and have that be as credible as it is. But the reality is he's running against Donald Trump. And I, I think that demonstrating that he wants to surround himself with strong, competent, qualified women and rely on them for advice is important. So I don't think that it's just symbolic. I don't think that it's um, a cynical response. I do think that we've lowered the bar considerably in terms of what's acceptable in U.S. politics because of the last four years. Kim Hoggart, I'll come to you on how the campaign might look. It's difficult for any of us to predict how anything might look over the next, say, five months. But what's your sort of profile on how campaigning might take place, how, how voting might take place, and whether that's going to happen in an ordered fashion as it normally would? Well, it's totally unpredictable now. Uh, so, sorry. Sorry, I can't answer your question. Mm. But uh, obviously, you know, I think the United States is going to be operating in a semi-lockdown environment. It's going to be very difficult to campaign. It's going to be difficult for Biden to campaign uh, when they're acknowledging the severity of COVID. Uh, and so setting the right example by not going to rallies. The president's desperately trying to get to rallies and, and you know, I'm sure he's going to keep that up. There are also three debates, I believe, that have been agreed to. Um, I don't even think they need to do three. I, if, I, if I were the Biden team, I'd, I'd be agreeing to do two, but it's too late for that. I think the, he doesn't need he doesn't need to do that. They're going to have to be really clever. They're just going to have to be really clever using technology to get their message out. Um, I think it's going to be a very subdued campaign in that sense, in, in terms of physical contact uh, with crowds. Um, the matter of the voting, though, is quite serious. Um, the United States, most states, um, are not geared up and not resourced uh, uh, substantially to handle mail-in balloting. Um, and we, of course, we know what the president thinks about that. Uh, he's not supportive because he believes uh, you know, it's gonna cost him the election. Mm. Um, and, and there's a lot of uh, false narratives going out around mail-in balloting. Most people who are following this know that there's absolutely no evidence to suggest they're fraudulent uh, of any statistical nature. Um, so, and yet, people, some people do believe this, don't they? I mean, I know yes. from my own social media threads, even yeah. relatives in the US are raising concerns about the prospect of mail ballots. Yes, so there is, it is resonating with some people. Absolutely. Uh, and unfortunately, in this day and age, of the internet where false narratives get spread all the time. Uh, it's, it's exasperate. It's exacerbating that belief. Um, there, there are apparently some 32 court cases going on around the country, uh, on, uh, in different States on the issue of, of voter suppression or, uh, mail-in balloting that they all have to be played out. So I, with the pandemic, it's going to be very hard for people to show up at the polls. It's going to be hard for states to open up a lot of polls. A lot of the volunteers who run polls are older people who are, you know, we've seen during these primaries, have not been able to put themselves forward to volunteer for health reasons. So uh, 
we're, we're going to be seeing a lot of, uh, I'm hoping it won't happen, but I think there's going to be a lot of confusion and possible chaos uh, on the, this federal election. Simon Jackman, what's your take on how the campaign and election might look? Oh, I, I share Kim's concerns about the conduct of the election. Um, it's, it's become abundantly clear in the last couple of years that one side of politics in the United States is interested in suppressing turnout because they believe it's, it's in their political advantage to do so. And, and it's, it's just not controversial to say so. Republicans are on the wrong side of that all over the country. Um, uh, be it from gerrymandering, an issue that I've worked on, through to manipulation of electoral rolls, through to restricting the the way voters get to the polls, and and you know, and spreading rumours about you know, patently untrue about vote by mail as being a recipe for electoral fraud. Um, the other concern I have is um, that we have a free and fair and above all peaceful election in the United States. Um, I look at the the way the temperature has gone up so high on the back of the George Floyd death and, and the way protests and counter protests. Um, and even before that, um, where you had uh, men in, in, um, in camouflage gear and, and, and long barreled automatic weapons um, uh, walking the state capitals. Mm. Um, is there a sort of a, you know, a, a mass voter suppression movement, um, sort of half vigilante, half, half, um, half political um, sort of movement uh, that David Kilcullen uh, spoke to us about um, in a webinar we did um, about two or three weeks ago now. Um, the number of groups out there who are so re resourced appropriately and motivated uh, to, to make mischief um, of that fashion uh, is really concerning. Jennifer um, Lawless, you're sitting there in Virginia and we have a couple of minutes to go. What's your take? Do you, are you confident that we'll see a free, fair, safe election? I think a lot of it comes down to Donald Trump, and that's why I'm not confident, because the best way to put an end to any concern that there would be violence or that there would be protesting or that there would be any kind of um, disarray around the election would be for the president to explicitly say, look, we have free and fair elections in this country. We won last time. I don't know what's going to happen this time, but we have to respect the rule of law. He's demonstrated that he's unwilling to do that. And so, you know, I'm hopeful, but I think a lot of this comes down to the fact that we just don't have the capacity at the local and the state level to really handle elections, not in person or with a limited number of precincts that are open. And as a result, we also don't have the capacity to make sure in all of these locations that everything is conducted safely. So I'm hopeful, um, I mean, this has been something that everybody here has been talking about for a long time and been preparing for. And when we look at the most recent primaries, many of which had competitive elections down ballot, there was not violence, there were long lines even amid the pandemic. Um, and so that's part of the reason that I have a pretty optimistic view about this, but nothing would surprise me at this point, unfortunately. <laughs> Well, we can only hope for a safe, free and fair election. That completes our event election watch. The vice presidential sweepstakes today 